So welcome to the MACP podcast. My name is Uzo Ehyog and um, I'm the communications officer for the MACP. So today we are lucky enough to have Dr. Nick Clark. Dr. Nick Clark is an educator, a researcher, a clinician, a physiotherapist, a MACP member and also a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Hi Uzo, thanks very much for the invitation to be here. It's brilliant. No, we are really great. We are really grateful to have you. So, Nick, uh, for the listeners, or for the benefit of the listeners, can you tell tell me a little bit about yourself and, um, and your journey so far? So, how have you got to this point professionally? Because you've had quite an interesting career so far. Um, sure, I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, I've been lucky. I've had a lot of opportunities um, throughout my career. So... Currently, I'm a senior lecturer in sport rehabilitation at St Mary's University in Twickenham, um, where I split my time between uh, lecturing and academic duties there, as well as leading the knee injury control and clinical advancement research group that we have there now. Um, And then the other main role that I have as well is working part-time as a, a knee consultant physio for Complete Physio Clinics in London. Um, so that's what I'm doing now, but I think if we go just back to the beginning, I actually first trained as a, a YMCA fitness instructor and personal trainer um, while I was studying to be a secondary school PE teacher at the University of Greenwich. Um, as much as I love teaching, I just became more interested in, in physiotherapy, so I then went on to do my undergrad training at the University of East London. Um, after which I did two years of junior rotations at the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead. Uh, And during that time as well, I became qualified as a a certified strength and conditioning specialist back in 2000. Um, And so I was able to really start applying strength and conditioning principles within musculoskeletal physiotherapy and manual therapy, as well as, of course, all my other junior rotations there as well. So, I mean, at that time, Nick, so you would have been quite unique because in 2000, um, there weren't many um, strength and conditioning specialists in the UK, let alone strength and conditioning specialists that were also physiotherapists as well. Would that be fair to say? I I would say that's accurate to say. I mean, you know, 2000, the the UK Strength and Conditioning Association didn't even exist. Um, If anybody wanted to get into weightlifting as such, then an example of what was around then was baller. Um, let's see if I remember this, the British Amateur Weightlifting Association. Uh, and at that time, the National Strength and Conditioning Association in the US was sending some of its representatives over to the UK a couple of times a year to run these certifications. So I believe, I could be wrong with this, but I believe I was certainly one of the first physios to go through that certification. But um, was probably within the first two or three cohorts that became certified in the UK. So it was an exciting time, yeah. Yeah, cool, brilliant. Um, So really after my rotations at the Royal Free, I decided that I wanted to improve my clinical reasoning a lot. So, you know, I had quite a good background in exercise at that stage, Mm -hmm. um, sports psychology as a result of my physical education training and, and learning about how to coach movement, how to coach sports skills. But I wanted to really improve my clinical reasoning process Mm. and then within that as well, my manual therapy skills. Mm. So at the time for me, it was a bit of a no-brainer, which was a case Mm. of I need to go and do my manual therapy master's degree. So 
Uh, I went off to do that at uh, University College London during the, uh, the manual therapy degree that was running there at the time. Um, and towards the end of that I started working at, at Saracens Rugby Club. So it was a nice opportunity to, to get a couple of years experience working with elite level rugby players. Mm. Um, and then really I think the, the easiest way to sum up some of the years that followed after that is to say that I had a mixture of, of NHS work which involved um, working at St Thomas's Hospital in the Haemophilia Centre for example and redesigning the physiotherapy pathway there with some of the most fragile joints that someone would see in clinical practice with uh, wow. you know, young men with haemophilia. Um, and then moving on from, from uh, the Haemophilia Centre at St Thomas's to, to working in outpatients and guys. Uh, alongside that NHS work I then decided that I wanted some other opportunities so I had an opportunity to work with the Parachute Regiment mm -hmm. with the British Army in Colchester and was involved with um, redesigning the outcome measures for their lower limb rehabilitation pathways that were in place there. And that then led on to spending several months actually working with the, uh, the infantry mm. down in Tidworth and, and redesigning the physiotherapy pathway there all the way from um, paper referral to mm. deciding how do we discharge this infantry soldier back to full duty. Yeah. Um, you know, potentially running around the battlefield. Uh, and, and really all of that work culminated in me eventually going off to do my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh in the United States and mm. my time was uh, split there really simply to explain half and half was doing injury prevention and performance optimization research with US military special forces, um, principally the Navy SEALs and then also doing sports medicine, injury prevention and rehabilitation and performance optimization mm. work as well. And then of course, having completed that program, I came back to the UK and, and took the position at St Mary's and mm. still decided I wanted to do some clinical work as well. So a bit of a journey, um, lots of opportunities, had the opportunity to learn from a lot of very clever, very experienced people mm. um, and really have enjoyed my journey so far. Wow, I mean, so it sounds like you have had um, a very interesting journey, and and clearly you've worked with um, you know patients and clients really across the movement continuum. Um, you know, from being you know extremely disabled, um, you know, right right the way through to um, high level performance. That's really interesting. I'm sure the listeners will find it really interesting. So moving into the podcast, then. So this podcast is all about sensory motor control. Um, and its utilisation within clinical MSK practice. So from your perspective, can you tell us why sensory motor control is important for human movement, please? Yeah, of course, uh, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. Uh, and just for the listeners, if, um, if anybody wants to go away and find out some more information about this in terms of some research studies that are related to some of the topics I'll be talking about, then um, I'd ask them to go and have a look at the two masterclasses that were recently published in Manual Therapy, um, which I was lucky enough to co-author with uh, Dr. Ulrich Royersen in Sweden and Dr. Julia Trelieven from Australia, as well as the uh, lower limb book chapter that I was fortunate enough to co-author with Dr. Scott Lephart, which appears in Greaves' uh, Modern Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy. So all of those resources will have um, some research studies that support a lot of the concepts we're going to talk about today. Um, 
So in terms of sensory motor control, well, I guess where we should really start is what is sensory motor control? So the way that I define sensory motor control is simply the control of joint stability, posture and, and human movement. Um, and so to do that, we have a sensory component to the system. Um, we have a processing component to the system, which is essentially the central nervous system. And then we have a motor component to the sensory motor system. So in absolute simplest terms, there's three components, the sensory uh, processing and motor components. And what we can learn from looking at uh, effectively the nervous system in this way is that um, there's a sensory motor configuration. Mm. So what that means is, is we have to have appropriate sensory input mm. before we can have appropriate sen uh, motor output mm. um, and activation of skeletal muscle. I guess that has to be processed somewhere. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, all of the processing will occur in the central nervous system mm. in some shape or form. Wow. Um, so really, that's the way that I would simply say why sensory motor control is so important for human movement is that we've got to have that sensory input mm. that has to be processed by the central nervous system in some way to then activate skeletal muscle in some way to um, result in appropriate joint stability, appropriate posture or alignment of bony segments and joints uh, and appropriate movement patterns as well. Okay, excellent. Thanks for that. So then, I guess specifically then, why is sensory motor control um, important in injury prevention and, re and rehabilitation? Yeah, that's a great question, Uzo, um, which we need to put things in context, really. So, um, from an injury prevention perspective, the way that a lot of the literature talks about this and, and the way that I view it and I use it in my clinical practice is that the sensory motor system is predominantly used to optimise joint stability. Sure. Um, and we can relate this to peripheral joints is an easy way to think of this model, but it can apply to the spine as well. Mm. So what we then really get into is, is defining well, what is joint stability. So again, a simple way to, uh, to define joint stability and think of it in a clinical context is uh, joint stability is simply the ability of a joint to remain in or return to appropriate alignment. Mm. So we're talking about the alignment of the bony segments that make up the joint. Uh, so essentially if we lose joint stability for some reason mm. and the joint moves too far out of its ideal alignment, mm -hmm. then we can expect tissues to be damaged in some way. Okay. So from that context, sensory motor control is extremely important in injury prevention but equally if we want to uh, think about this in rehab and re-injury prevention it's really it's the same principle okay. we want to make sure that joints are moving within their uh, anatomical limits otherwise tissues can get damaged mm. cool. and, and so can you provide the listeners with uh, maybe some some clinical examples of, of that sure um, I mean an easy example is to think of uh, well, actually, let me just back up a moment. Let's let's just think about some of the injuries that can happen uh, and how they're defined. So, um, if we think of traumatic injuries, mm -hmm. we can we can define these in simplest terms as non-contact injuries or contact injuries. Uh, and again, in simplest terms, a non-contact injury is when someone experiences trauma without 
any contact occurring with um, an opponent or an object, for example. Um, whereas a contact injury occurs because someone does obviously have contact with an opponent in a sporting context or mm. some object which yeah. they might hit for some reason. So. Um, an easy example of a non-contact injury is an ankle sprain. Yeah. Somebody's running around the football pitch or the rugby pitch and they turn their ankle. Mm. So the ankle will lose its ideal alignment if it inverts and plants or flexes too far. Mm -hmm. And as a result, some of the soft tissues can be excessively stretched and potentially torn. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a direct example of a loss of joint stability or a loss of joint alignment where the tissues get injured. Um, same situation with a, a non-contact knee injury. So classic one, of course, that's all over the literature at the moment is a, a valgus collapse. Mm. Um, potentially tearing the ACL, the mm. MCL, um, and, and injuring other structures around the knee. Mm. If we move to the upper limb, for example, we might think of a, a gymnast who's doing some kind of cartwheel or vault or mm -hmm. floor exercise in some way, and perhaps they don't position their hand properly or move their body appropriately over the fixed hand and arm, mm -hmm. and then the elbow can collapse into valgus, and we yeah. have an elbow medial collateral ligament sprain. Yeah. So all of those are examples of, uh, easy examples to perhaps visualize of joints losing their alignment, so therefore losing their stability, yeah. moving too far, and tissues being damaged as a result of that. So those, I think, would be some really quite nice yeah. uh, clinical examples just to visualize there. Okay. I mean, that leads me nicely into my next question, really, because, so in the chapter that you wrote in uh, Greaves, sorry, or in the chapter that you co-authored, um, in Greaves Modern Manual Musculoskeletal Physiotherapy. So you talk about sensory motor control and you use this concept, you talk about a concept called stress shielding of non-contractile mm -hmm. tissues. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think that fits in quite nicely with what you were saying, with what you were saying previously. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important link actually. So the term stress shielding is a term that I actually first heard used by Professor Scott Lephart, who was... Uh, in charge of the Neuromuscular Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and it's a term that he used in relation to how the sensory motor system basically activates skeletal muscle to shield the non-contractile tissues or the inert tissues from excessive forces. Um, so another way of thinking about this is that basically the skeletal muscles protect the non-contractile tissues from forces that could cause injury, whether they be tensile forces, compression forces, or torsion forces, or combinations of all of those. Um, and so again, in simple terms, if muscles do not control joint movement and prevent excessive joint displacement, uh, and, and absorb the forces that are being transmitted through joints at certain times, then the non-contractile tissues can be exposed to excessive forces mm. and injured in that way. So that really is what stress shielding is referring to, is that the skeletal muscles shield all of the other tissues, bone, cartilage, ligament, joint capsules, uh, even peripheral nerves as they wind their way around joints, and even blood vessels conceivably, the, the muscles protect all of those other tissues from being overloaded and overstressed. Cool, thanks. Okay, so, um, so 
you seem to be very much your you know you're a clinician and you're also a scientist as well um, and so as a consequence you, you appear to be guided by physiological principles in your writing and clinical practice so I guess my question to you and probably this is what the listeners are also um, thinking is so how does all this fit into a biopsychosocial approach within a broad clinical reasoning framework yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, clinical reasoning is very important to me um, in my practice, and um, you know, very important when I'm teaching my students as well. So, what it really comes down to is, is that I feel we should have a, a common language um, and, and even systems that are needed to organise our thinking uh, in a way that we can actually facilitate appropriate clinical reasoning processes, because it's only through uh, those appropriate processes we can generate rational clinical interventions sure. so I like to think of myself as, as what I call a scientific clinician so what that means to me is that I use for example anatomy physiology biomechanics uh, pathology what we know from the sciences to guide my my clinical reasoning and my clinical practice um, it's important for me to feel that I have a, a scientific basis and a rational basis for what I'm going to be doing with my patients. Mm. Um, and that goes really all the way back to when I was a junior physio because I wanted to be sure that what I was doing was primarily safe mm. and then effective. Mm. Um, so in terms of how I apply that and you know your question and how it fits into the biopsychosocial model, um, I could be wrong with this, but I believe I'm accurate in saying that the biopsychosocial model actually originates from the World Health Organization. Um, I certainly recall seeing explanations about that in the, uh, the International Classification of uh, Functioning Disability and Health, or the ICF for short. And so, you know, that document provides a framework for, for reasoning and practice, mm. where it simply relates to three levels of human function. Um, the first level is the biological level, so that refers to body structures and body functions, and you know that includes the physical side of things, the mm. psychological side of things, and the emotional side of things. Mm. Uh, and then the next level is actually the personal level, where um, the framework talks about activity limitations. Mm. And of course, there's a lot of interaction that happens here, where um, the suggestion is is that. Uh, problems with body structure and function can result in activity limitations mm. and then if somebody has an activity limitation this brings us on to the third level the social level um, they can have participation restrictions where they mm. can't actually participate in the things that they need to do in their everyday life whether it be family work mm. um, recreation and so on and so all of those different levels obviously interact um, but what I particularly like about the biopsychosocial model and the way it's presented in um, this World Health Organization document is that it, it refers to what are called impairments. So yeah. an impairment is, it comes back to this problem, yeah. potential problem or uh, a disorder or disease in some way with body structure or body function in some way. Yeah. Um, and so an impairment can be pain, it can be effusion, it can be joint stiffness, it mm. can be muscle weakness, it could be 
um, impaired proprioception in some way, mm. impaired balance. But all of those are, are considered uh, in such a way that they can interact to result in these activity limitations and then mm. these participation restrictions. So the way that I employ all of that having this scientific basis to clinical practice and then fitting it into the biopsychosocial model is that we address it all together potentially at the same time not mm. necessarily but we should be reasoning through many different aspects of this mm. at the same time absolutely um, so that's really the way that yeah. I try and fit absolutely. things into the biopsychosocial framework mm. presumably you get all that information from the patient's story um, yeah absolutely or the vast majority of it around you know the activity and participation um, uh, limitations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where we we really just look at the classic, or I guess what we could call the classic uh, physiotherapy assessment process, from mm. a subjective assessment to an objective assessment. Mm. Um, it's very, very important for me to firstly get an idea of um, you know how the person in front of me is being affected, and, mm. and get to know who that person is, what absolutely. their uh, what their current situation is what their activity limitations mm. are, what their participation restrictions are, but of course, on an individual level, what their individual fears are, yeah. what their anxieties are, sure. um, what they want to focus on yeah. primarily. Um, and then of course we would move into the physical assessment uh, and potentially start identifying, well, what are the uh, the activity limitations, the functional limitations, mm. uh, and, and what impairments might be present. Yeah. Is pain a primary complaint? Is uh, an effusion a problem? Is uh, joint stiffness a problem? Mm. And then obviously, when we've uh, performed a thorough subjective and a, a thorough objective and, and got to know the person in front of us, mm then we can really start reasoning where to start with our interventions. So yeah, it's, it's very important that uh, we take into account who's this individual person in front of us. Yeah, brilliant, no, thank you. So, um, so for the benefit of the listeners, um, I just wonder if it might be helpful at this stage, before, before we move on any further, if you just briefly review the uh, sensory motor system and its <coughs> constituent parts, because I guess you know, many listeners are a bit like me, they're probably a bit rusty, you know. Um, so I'd be grateful if you might do that and for the benefit of the listeners, if it's okay. Yeah, of course. Um, so if we just think back to some of the things that I was explaining a moment ago is that we can, on the simplest level, divide the, the sensory motor system into um, sensory components, processing components, and a motor component. Sure. So the sensory component we can also call the afferent components. And that can include any of uh, the sensory systems that input to the central nervous system and can influence muscle activity. So on this level we can talk about the visual system, mm. the, the vestibular system, um, the tactile system, thermoreceptors, the nociceptive system and of course the proprioceptive system. So all of those different um, sensory systems will have their unique sensory receptors. Yeah. that then actually um, transmit information to a nerve. And that nerve will then actually start to form what we can call the afferent pathway. 
so that nerve will in some way travel back to the central nervous system. Um, so for example, if we think of a, uh, a sensory neuron from around a joint in some way, a peripheral joint, mm -hmm. then a nerve will be sent back to the spinal cord. It will connect with one of the ascending systems that mm -hmm. then transmits uh, action potentials up to the supraspinal centers, mm -hmm. so the brain stem and the brain itself. Yeah. Uh, so we can really call that the entire afferent pathway. The sensory um, nerve ending, the nerve itself that then carries that information to the spinal cord and the ascending systems up to the brain. Um, then obviously there's all sorts of processing centers in the spinal cord and the brain itself. Um, but we can then just look at the central nervous system in three ways. So we can say that there are, uh, and, and the literature of course says this, is that uh, there are three levels of sensory motor control. So we can have the spinal level, the yeah. brain stem level, yeah. and the cortical level. Um, and obviously all three of those levels of the central nervous system will be processing sensory information at the same time. Mm. It's just convenient to break things down in that way and again sure. structure our thinking. Sure. So once this, um, this sensory information for example reaches the brain um, we can then have activation of the efferent pathway mm. or the motor pathway. So that's where sensory information will stimulate um, uh, the cell body of a motor neuron in the brain, of course the upper motor neuron, mm -hmm. and that will be transmitted down the spinal cord in some way from mm -hmm. the brain. Um, via uh, the upper motor neuron and it will then synapse mm -hmm. with a lower motor neuron. That action potential will be then transmitted through the periphery mm -hmm. ultimately to the, the motor end plate mm -hmm. and stimulate uh, the skeletal muscle. So that entire sensory processing motor process or we can say you know the afferent processing efferent process um, and pathways will ultimately switch skeletal muscle on in some way mm -hmm. to maintain joint stability, maintain posture or result in effective movement. So uh, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, no, great. No, thank you very much for the refresher. Um, so the sensory system includes the vestibular, uh, the visual, the tactile, the thermal, um, nociceptive and also the proprioceptive system. So can you tell us some more about proprioception? Sure. What is um, it? Well, you know, this is uh, this is where we start back with definitions again. So the classic definition of proprioception historically is simply the sense of um, joint movement and joint position. Yeah. Um, so really, that definition gives us an idea of at least two of the components of proprioception, which are joint position sense and right. kinesthesia, or some people would say kinesthesia. Um, more recently. The, uh, the components of proprioception have been added to with a third component which is called force sense. Okay. And the reason for that is is because we can consider the different types of um, sensory nerve endings that contribute to those different types of, uh, all those, those components of proprioception and what we're getting into here are uh, the types of mechanoreceptors that okay. exist. So for example around joints we have um, sensory nerve endings, mechanoreceptors such as Ruffini endings, mm -hmm. Pacinian endings. Uh, in muscles we obviously have muscle spindles mm -hmm. 
Uh, and then in tendons and at musculotendinous junctions, we have the Golgi tendon organ. Good old GTOs, eh? The GTOs. <laughs> um, and that's really where we get our idea of this concept of force sense, is that force sense primarily comes from the Golgi tendon organs. That makes sense. Um, whereas our sense of joint position and joint motion comes from a mixture of the joint mechanoreceptors mm-hmm. and the muscle mechanoreceptors, the muscle spindles. Sure. Uh, and really all a mechanoreceptor is, it, it's, it's a transducer. Mm. So what that means is it converts mechanical stimuli into electrical signals that are then transmitted up that sensory nerve. It's all coming back now. It's all coming back. <laughs> Physiology 101, it's all coming back. It's great. I'm, I'm glad I've been able to prop <laughs> that. Um, what we can also remember with this as well is that although Strictly speaking, proprioception is the result of these mechanoreceptors that are stimulated in joint tissues, muscle tendon tissues. That um, skin and cutaneous mechanoreceptors play a part as well, because obviously if we move a joint, then in simplest terms, on one side of the joint the skin's going to be stretched, on the other side of the joint the skin's going to be potentially compressed, uh, and that will trigger mechanoreceptors um, in the skin. So they'll also convert those mechanical signals into um, electrical signals that are transmitted back to the central nervous system. And so although the skin isn't strictly involved in proprioception, Mm. um, by definition, it can give us, uh, give contributions to our sense of joint Mm. position and joint motion. Okay, so that's Um, maybe how, that's how um, tape, um, you know, therapeutic taping is maybe useful. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, I know we're going to touch on that later, so I won't steal your thunder on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an an important point, is that, yeah, if we have an understanding of the neuroanatomy, the neurophysiology on some level, Mm. it gives us that scientific basis for rationalising and designing therapeutic interventions. Um, So, yeah, nailed it, Uzo, there. Uh, And if I can just finish off with that, is is it's important to really understand how um, proprioception is used. So it's all very well that these mechanical signals are transduced into electrical signals and transmitted back to the spinal cord um, and the rest of the central nervous system. But if we think of what happens at spinal level, those, that sensory information is used to trigger um, muscle activity, mm-hmm. motor responses. So that's basically spinal reflexes. Yeah. So again, this is an example of how sensory information is used to create some kind of motor output. Uh, and of course that happens in um, supraspinal areas as well where this sensory information is transmitted up to the sensory cortex. Um, and this is a really important concept that, that kind of prefaces some of the other things that we're going to okay. come on to later, which is to understand that that sensory information goes into the sensory um, areas of the brain. And then that sensory information actually inputs into the motor areas of the brain. Right. So this is where we can start to understand that it's very important to stimulate the sensory parts of the brain because they input into those motor areas of the brain. And that ultimately is how we, uh, I say ultimately, it's, it's really one of the most important mechanisms that's involved in learning wow. and developing what we can call feed-forward motor programs. Right. And so feed-forward motor programs are where... Um, we've used sensory input from the past 
yeah. to result in the generation of new motor programs that theoretically um, result in improved joint stability, joint yeah. posture, and, and overall movement. So again, understanding the the neuroanatomy, and in this case, what we're talking about is the neurocircuitry. Yeah, is sensory input is critical at spinal level and supraspinal level for generating appropriate motor responses. So I just wanted to add that because it's um, that's a really it's important, important for some of the things that yeah. we're going to be talking about later. Absolutely, no, that's really really important. Um, so. How does all this relate to, say, for example, balance? You know, because that's something that many clinicians use therapeutically and also test in clinical practice. Right. Um, this is where I want to start with a, a little bit of um, a historical perspective um, because if we look at the literature there's a lot of misinterpretation and uh, incorrect definitions of proprioception and how that relates to balance so for example there's some literature that um, talks about proprioception and kinesthesia or um, proprioception and joint position sense as if they're different things mm. um, so really you know at the beginning we, we define the fact that proprioception is made up of joint position sense and kinesthesia so if someone's talking about kinesthesia they're talking about proprioception if someone's talking about joint position sense they're talking about proprioception but some of the literature relates um, balance as being mm -hmm. part of proprioception. Um, even the term equilibrium mm -hmm. is used. Uh, and even in some older texts, uh, reference is made to the inner ear and the mm -hmm. vestibular apparatus. Well, really, if we think about what balance is, balance is the product of, of integrating. The ability of someone to maintain the balance, that's the product of integrating visual inputs, mm -hmm. vestibular inputs, and proprioceptive inputs to actually result in appropriate motor outputs. Mm. So the difficulty with balance is that balance isn't just a test of proprioception if we're using a balance test in clinical practice. Mm. Um, of course one of the classic things is well someone's had an ankle sprain so let's measure their balance as a, to try and give an indication of their proprioception. Well you know, we're actually measuring if their eyes are open we're including visual <laughs> inputs, <laughs> vestibular inputs, but ultimately to maintain someone, someone to maintain their balance, excuse me, um, they need to have enough of a motor output. So they need to have enough muscle strength, for mm. example. Um, and then, of course, all of our sensory information, again, is being processed in some way. Mm. So a balance test isn't a test of proprioception. It's a test of all those sensory inputs. It's a test of how their central nervous system is mm. processing it. And on some level, it's also a test of whether they've even got enough strength to maintain their mm. balance in the first place. So this is why we should really look at balance as balance is a, is a sensory motor activity. Sure. It's using everything. Yeah. Um, so balance tests are, are not tests of proprioception. They're sure. tests of balance. Balance training yeah. is not just proprioception training yeah. is balance training. Um, there's even some literature that shows that if someone goes through a balance training program, then their muscle strength improves. Yeah. So it's well, that would make sense then, wouldn't it? Because exactly. Because it's, because it's multifaceted. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's hitting all of those elements. So if someone has poor balance, we need to really assess 
their sensory systems as mm. carefully as we can in a clinical environment. We need to try and come up with some um, determination about how their central nervous system is working. Mm. Uh, and their motor systems, like do they even have enough strength mm. in their ankle muscles, for example, to maintain their balance. Yeah. So the literature and, and, and clinical practice, it, it's, um, it's not entirely accurate in this area. So this is why in um, the, art, the masterclass articles in manual therapy, we talk mm. about this uh, actually in both of the articles in some mm. detail because we want to try and uh, clarify this for mm. the clinicians. It's very messy, isn't it? That would be one way of putting it. <laughs> it's very messy. Um, although you're going to clean it up during this podcast, so that's really good for the listeners. Um, so, okay, it's so a million dollar question then. Um, you know, we're using balance uh, possibly inappropriately, or we're using the terms inappropriately. So, how does the busy clinician then measure proprioception in the clinic? Well, that's. That's a question and that's the challenge um, <laughs> because measuring just proprioception in the clinic is, uh, is very, very hard. Um, you know, if we think about perhaps when we first qualified and um, we didn't have smartphones, for example, mm. uh, it was extremely difficult to measure different um, components of proprioception. So uh, I'm just going to go to the lab actually to start with, you know, obviously in mm. the lab, we have all sorts of um, high-tech equipment that can be used to measure joint position sense, kinesthesia and force sense. And mm. very, very often for peripheral joints, then uh, isokinetic dynamometers are used in some way. Okay. Um, and the reason that they're useful is because they can measure very, very small peripheral joint movements. Mm. Now, before the advent of smartphones, for example, one of the only ways we could measure joint position sense in the clinic would be basically goniometry. Mm. And of course, the problem with goniometry is that it has the potential to be very unreliable or, or have low reliability and very high errors. Big standard error, yeah. Um, and so goniometry really isn't useful for measuring joint position sense. Right. Um, with smartphones, um, you know, we can now download a lot of these free apps, mm. like various spirit levels or mm. angle measuring apps, uh, and it's much easier to move a single um, peripheral joint, move one of the bony segments that make up that joint, mm. and measure the amount of displacement or the position of that bony segment in space with a smartphone mm. that's using one of these spirit level or joint angle measurement mm. programs. Um, and I would say at the moment, that's probably the easiest way to measure proprioception clinically, mm. is to measure joint position sense using mm. one of those devices. Um, I don't know of a, an, an easy way to measure kinesthesia mm. clinically. Um, and measuring force sense, well, We've tried using handheld dynamometers to measure that, but again, the reliability actually isn't particularly mm. good. Um, the standard error of measurement is quite high, mm. uh, and it's, it's very hard to do. Mm. So, although on one hand, proprioception we can think is extremely important mm. for all the reasons we've already discussed, it's actually really a great challenge to to measure this in the clinic and in fact um, some of the research I've been doing recently and research that uh, we're doing at St Mary's is actually going right back to the beginning yeah. uh, and developing new ways of actually measuring proprioception both in the lab and the clinic because 
we may not actually have the best means of doing that at the moment. Okay. So it's a challenge. Okay. What about things like um, laser pointers? Uh, I've had some experience with laser pointers. Um, again, really what it comes down to is two things, what, whatever technology we mm. use is is that technology employed within the measurement procedure in such a way that we can show the whole measurement procedure has uh, adequate reliability mm. for what we're measuring but also is the standard error of measurement for example small enough so mm. in other words we can detect small variations in someone's proprioceptive sense mm. uh, and really that's the challenge both in the lab and the clinic yeah. is that we may not actually have the technology at this point in time um, or have come up with the procedures to measure proprioception on a small enough level, mm. um, on an accurate enough level to detect clinically significant changes. Um, so laser pointers certainly can be used but I'm not aware of uh, certainly for peripheral joints, anyone that has um, published any work that shows a, a, a nice, quick, easy, reliable sure. and accurate procedure. Sure. Um, so there's lots of work being done all over the world in that at the moment. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Um, so what's the, looking at the evidence, as I, mean, I mean, you just touched on uh, a little bit around uh, some of the uh, contemporary evidence, but what's the contemporary evidence base in proprioception and um, what is clinical importance? Um, well, firstly, the, the evidence base is, is huge. Okay. Um, you know, we've got decades worth uh, of research um, that comes from a whole realm of different areas. So I think really before we dip into it, one of the things, again, we need to acknowledge is, is the complexity of the nervous system, mm. the human nervous system, and that with all the, the, the scientific and medical research that's been done, we're perhaps only just starting to learn the intricacies mm. of the nervous system. And then again, we have these technological limitations at the moment in terms of how can we measure the neurophysiological mechanisms that are at play here. Mm. Um, so really what we, we have to do is um, use, both, uh, use research from both animal and human studies. Uh, and this really comes into uh, a situation where we're combining these different types of research, whether it be animal or uh, in vitro or even in vivo human research. Um, and we combine that research in such a way that what we're doing is we're translating it into uh, a clinically rational and clinically usable intervention. And that's the challenge is how do we go through this process of clinical translation. So. Um, this is something we could talk about for a long, long time, so I'm just going to actually try and pick out some of perhaps the most, what I feel are the most important things in, yeah. in just understanding um, sensory motor control on, on, on a basic level, a conceptual yeah. level. So we've got histology studies, for example, that have been done in animals and humans, and they consistently identify um, different types of mechanoreceptors in all sorts, all sorts of joint tissues. Yeah. So, for example, there are mechanoreceptors in um, human menisci, acetabular labrum, okay. glenoid labrum. There are mechanoreceptors in capsules, and yep. um, there are obviously mechanoreceptors in ligaments. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we know that there are muscle spindles and Golgi tendon organs. Uh, and these have been shown to exist consistently in animals and humans, peripheral joints mm -hmm. and um, spinal joints. So 
the nervous system is, um, you know, it's there obviously for a reason. So we have these mechanoreceptors there for a reason. The histology studies allow us to know that they exist, and then if we look at other kind of mechanistic studies, yeah. then we can try and start understanding how they're used and why they're there. So if we start with um, spinal level, for example, and, and we look at animal studies, um, there's work that's been done in the US um, with cats so sorry to some of the cat lovers out there, they may not want to, to hear some of this. Um, there's been work that's been done with the shoulder joint with cats where the capsule of the shoulder has been stimulated with electrical or mechanical stimuli and that causes reflex activation of the rotator cuff muscles. Right. So there's a capsule rotator cuff reflex that exists. Um, other work from the US has uh, demonstrated the same um, neurocircuitry again with the ankle in cats. Mm. So you stimulate the ankle ligaments uh, and that causes reflex activation of the various muscles around the ankle. Uh, and then classic work that was done uh, by uh, Hakan Johansson. <coughs> Excuse me. That's all right. Um, in Sweden, uh, yeah, if I recall correctly, in Sweden, he did a lot of knee work with cats. Mm. And this is where um, it's very, very intricate work demonstrating that, again, if, um, for example, the ligaments in the knee are stimulated with very low tensile forces, mm -hmm. it causes um, reflex activation of skeletal muscles. But very, very interestingly, increases the sensitivity of the muscle spindle. Right. And of course the muscle spindle is really considered to be the most sensitive of all of our mechanoreceptors and proprioceptors. So that's that was really important work because it showed that um, capsuloligamentous tissues actually have an input into the gamma motor neuron and the muscle spindles can, can affect the sensitivity of the muscle spindles. So all of that is, is spinal work in, um, with animals. Then there's also sp spinal level work, if you like, that's been done with, with humans where electrical stimulation of, for example, the knee ligaments um, results in reflex activation of various muscles around the knee. Um, but also, very interestingly, mechanical studies have shown that if you mechanically load um, the various ligaments around the knee, the muscles that actually protect that ligament from being overstretched are activated. So a classic example is uh, if the ACL is loaded, the hamstrings will fire. Yeah. Um, there's other work that shows, for example, if the MCL is loaded, then the medial hamstrings will fire and sartorius will fire. Okay. So there is a selective, there seems to be um, a selective process, selective neurocircuitry that's hardwired into the nervous system of mammals mm. based on work that's been done on cats and what's been done on humans. Right, really um, the work that Johansson did with the cats was, was very intricate and elegant um, and couldn't have been done in humans at that time because it involved putting electrodes into various um, parts of uh, near the spinal cord basically. But um, some very elegant work that's come out of America again um, a researcher by the name of Alan Needle, who
who's an athletic trainer, has done some very nice work um, with the ankle, showing that, um, or basically what he did was he inserted uh, microfilament electrodes into the peroneal nerve uh, and identified afferent nerve fibers, so sensory nerve fibers coming from the muscle spindles of the ankle muscles. And then what he did was he uh, and his research group basically loaded the ankles around the, li uh, the ligaments around the ankle, excuse me, getting a bit tongue-tied here, <laughs> loaded the ligaments around the ankle and detected an increased discharge from the muscle spindle afferents in the perineal nerve. So that's the first work that I'm aware of that really starts to confirm what Johansson found in cats. Yeah. And, and the takeaway from this is that um, mechanoreceptors in non-contractile tissues not only stimulate extrafusal muscle fibers, so what we usually recognize as skeletal muscle, but also intrafusal muscle fibers, so the muscle spindles. Um, and this is very clever neurocircuitry, which again shows us that if we have very low level mechanical forces in capsules and ligaments, so the kind of forces that we apply with manual assessment or manual therapy techniques, right, okay. we can actually stimulate on some level the muscle spindle. Um, so that's all at spinal level. If we look at supraspinal level, um, and we look at work that's been done in humans, then again, both uh, electrical stimulation work and mechanical stimulation work around the knee, for example, has shown that if we stimulate the ligaments or we stimulate the menisci, then electrical activity can be detected in the brain. So what that means is, is that by uh, applying mechanical stimuli to a peripheral joint, we can directly access the central nervous system, but directly access the brain. And so this comes back around to um, really what I wanted to mention earlier, which was that we can start stimulating the sensory centers of the brain, the sensory cortex, with peripheral joint <coughs> mechanical loading. Um, so, you know, that's just some of the evidence base for, for this, and then, the second part of your question, which was, uh, if I recall correctly, what's the clinical importance? Um, Absolutely. I mean, this is the this is the, also the, the the challenge is that we're still learning a lot about this. But what we can do is we can go um, to a historical perspective again um, and look at medicine. And I'll just touch on this briefly because it's a bit of an extreme example, but it is. Um, where a lot of the thinking around proprioception and the protection of joints has originated, which is if we look at, for example, uh, Charcot neuropathy, or it may be Charcot neuropathy, um, or excuse me, what's more correctly called neuropathic arthropathy. Um, so medical conditions such as syphilis mm -hmm. would have resulted in potentially sensory impairments. And so those uh, people that were unfortunately affected by that on, on quite a, a major scale ended up with quite severe osteoarthritis. Um, also people that have neurological conditions such as A beta sensory neuropathy um, unfortunately can end up with excessive joint loads and also premature and more severe osteoarthritis. Right. Um, 
it's been observed as well that unfortunately some people that have severe diabetes yeah. and have peripheral neuropathies can have quite early and more severe osteoarthritis as well. Wow. Okay. Um, so if we just look at uh, medical history with humans, then there is this link between a loss of sensory feedback, loss of proprioception, and the accelerated wear and tear or destruction of joints. Um, and the present day, a lot of the musculoskeletal literature and the sports medicine literature relates the theory of how a loss in proprioception, a loss in sensory feedback is actually involved in um, the onset of primary, potentially involved in the onset of primary osteoarthritis. Mm. Uh, and there's research that's been done in the past and is being done all over the world looking into this. Um, but also it's a model that's applied very much in a sports injury and a sports medicine context. The trick again is, is that although there is a very sound um, physiological basis, very sound scientific basis to this, the challenge is actually coming up with measurement procedures that are um, sensitive enough to detect very small deficiencies in, in proprioception. So the clinical basis really simply is that all of this is put into a context where if we potentially have a loss of proprioception and sensory feedback, then wear and tear and degeneration of the joints can be um, accelerated. Right. So it's very important from a clinical context to, to get a better understanding of this. Yeah. My name is Uzo Ehiok and I'm the Communications Officer for the MACP. This is a great opportunity to take a quick break and to tell you about the MACP and other continuing professional development activities which you can access. The MACP offers high quality educational opportunities through a variety of formats, including short courses, lectures, and online learning, including topics such as motivational interviewing, introduction to musculoskeletal radiology, manual therapy, spinal masqueraders, MSK updates, and of course, conferences. In 2016, the MACP will host the IFON Conference. The IFON Conference is a prestigious international conference held every four years to celebrate innovation and research within the neuromusculoskeletal physiotherapy field. In July 2016, we will host a conference in the UK in Glasgow, and the theme for the conference will be Expanding Horizons. This conference will be of benefit to both clinicians and researchers alike and will bring together leaders and innovators in the clinical, academic and research fields. This conference will cover five strands which will include advanced assessment, practice and managing complex patients, integrating research into practice, health promotion and public health, changing roles and scope of practice, teaching, learning and professional development. To find out more, simply join our mailing list and receive all the latest news and information on iPhone 2016. This will include being the first to hear our keynote speaker podcast as they are released. So to find out more and to register your interest, visit the iPhone website at www.ifontconference.org and see you there in July 2016. Okay then, so leading on, um, 
So how can our therapeutic in interventions uh, be used, <laughs> deliberately, um, be used the best effect to target the sensory motor system? Um, well, that's a great question, obviously, leading on to, to clinical intervention. So I'm going to actually answer this. I'm going to be very clear for the listeners that I'm going to answer this outside of the chronic pain context. And I'm going to apply this to um, potential situations of, of acute pain, acute injury, or even post-surgery. And that's because different contexts um, and models of clinical reasoning can apply to both chronic pain and acute pain. Um, sure. But again, before I can answer that, what, what we need to really consider is we need to understand the effects of injury and pain on sensory motor control mm. so if there is trauma for example there's usually tissue damage yeah. um, there are plenty of histology studies that show that when capsules and ligaments are injured um, mechanoreceptors are destroyed yeah. And then there's plenty of research as well that shows that people that have ligament deficiency, for example, have impaired proprioception, yeah. whether it be kinesthesia or joint position sense. Um, papers have also been published that report that there's impaired um, cortical processing. Okay. So processing in the sensory motor cortex is altered in some way. Um, people that have proprioceptive deficits can um, as reported in some studies as well, they have an ability to activate the musculature, fully activate the musculature around that injured joint. Um, they also can have an, uh, an impaired ability to activate musculature around the same joints but on the opposite limb, hmm. um, which is very interesting in terms of potentially alluding to the kinds of neurocircuitry that we have mm. uh, and of course if, if we can't activate muscles fully then we have decreased muscle strength mm. so that's one way that um, just simply an injury which is uh, of the magnitude that tissues can be damaged can affect sensory motor control um, there are lots of reports in the literature that show that uh, acute pain can result in impaired proprioception muscle inhibition um, decreased muscle strength, even altered postural control uh, and altered kinematics during functional tasks. Mm. Uh, effusion can be an issue as well, joint effusion. So there are reports that uh, state that effusion can result as well in impaired proprioception. Mm. There's lots of work that uh, report that effusions result in muscle inhibition. Um, an inability to obviously activate a muscle, to switch yeah. a muscle on, which again is going to result in decreased muscle strength if we mm. can't activate the muscle properly. Uh, and also that effusions can contribute to altered postural control um, and altered kinematics during functional tasks. So the way that we look at this when we're talking about actually um, trying to rationalize therapeutic interventions to, to affect the sensory motor system is that firstly we need to recognize that injury and surgery can affect all parts of the sensory motor system, sure. sensory processing and motor components. Sure. So really one of the ways that we can think about this is that a musculoskeletal injury isn't just a musculoskeletal injury, it's actually a neurological injury yeah. as well. Um, and this is really important because if we think about the the, uh, the motor side of things, the efferent side of things and the activation of muscle, uh, the appropriate activation of muscle is important because 
the muscle spindles are considered to be our most sensitive and potent proprioceptors. Yeah. So if there's a problem with actually activating muscle, then it makes sense that our proprioception is going to be impaired on some level. Um, mm. So we need to very carefully, before we can come up with appropriate interventions, we need to very carefully assess the person in front of us. Yeah. So, you know, how much tissue damage is there or isn't there? How much acute pain is present or not? And is there any fusion present or not? And then in, once we've identified those impairments, mm. we can select the appropriate interventions. So we have to understand how pain and injury affects the sensory motor system before we can choose the right intervention mm. techniques. Thank you. Okay. Um, and I guess presumably, I mean, I know you caveated that you were talking about the acute situation and, and not the patient that has persistent pain, but pain is pain. And, and so actually, you know, for the patient that has persistent pain, um, surely some of these ideas and principles and, and, and the principles, um, you know, maybe you may be able to use that in that situation. What, you know, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I think the first thing I'll say is that I'm not a pain specialist mm -hmm. and I don't actually see many patients now with chronic pain. Mm -hmm. But there's obviously a lot of debate and discussion in, in the literature and amongst clinicians historically on um, whether we should or shouldn't be using certain interventions mm -hmm. for the person with acute pain, subacute pain or chronic pain, however mm -hmm. we want to define those. Um, for me, it comes down to really, we need to do that thorough subjective. Mm. We need to do that thorough objective. Mm. We need to identify what the patient's main problems are, both from their perspective primarily and our perspective. Sure. Uh, and identify potentially what impairments there are. Yeah. Because again, if we identify the, the, the impairments that are present, we can choose the appropriate um, intervention techniques. Mm. And if someone has chronic pain that um, we know from the history is chronic in nature, mm. and there are unlikely to be any um, physiological mechanisms that are working um, relative to acute pain, mm. um, if there's no effusion present, if there's no joint stiffness present, then immediately we can start excluding other interventions that, that we would use for that. Um, so really, the principles certainly apply. Yeah. And really what it comes back down to is, is one of those first things you asked me, which is mm. we need to do a good job of assessing the individual Absolutely. person in front of us um, and take a thorough history, do a thorough examination. Absolutely. And it's only when we've done all that can we really... Um, decide on a, a safe course of treatment but obviously a, a, an appropriate and hopefully effective yeah. course of treatment brilliant. Um, so that's as that's as far as I will go on that one oh, brilliant no thank you <laughs> thank you okay so let's talk about manual therapy and um, sensory motor control so I guess you're a researcher and you like definitions, so can you define manual therapy <laughs> for us? So, yeah, I'm going to specifically answer this in the context of joint manual therapy. So, you know, thinking about mobilizations and manipulations. Um, 
that's those are the first things that come to mind when sure. I hear the term manual therapy for me. Um, and so what I think about is is that mobilization or a manipulation is passive movement of a patient's joint done primarily um, to decrease pain, decrease effusion, and if necessary, stretch capsulo-ligamentous tissues. So, um, you know, there are, there are physiological reasons and there are, there are mechanical reasons. Uh, and really it's as simple as that for me. Okay. So, how can manual therapy um, and exercise therapy be integrated into meaningful therapy? Uh, well, you know, that's obviously a very important question, um, and I'm going to talk about that, but I'm also going to include, um, as you touched on earlier, taping and okay. bracing, um, because I use taping and bracing a lot in my practice. Uh, so looking at manual therapy, first of all, there are, there are lots of published reports that show that manual therapy can decrease pain. Okay. Um, Passive movement uh, can facilitate lymphatic drainage of effusions, um, and that there are actually also some reports that show that passive movement and manual therapy can transiently enhance proprioception. Okay. And of course, that makes perfect sense if we think that we're loading capsuloligamentous tissue in some way and causing mechanoreceptor stimulation, and that's going to send a barrage of proprioceptive impulses back to the central nervous system. Uh, there's even, there are even some reports that show uh, or the, that state that manual therapy techniques, peripheral joint manual therapy techniques, can transiently uh, alter muscle activation patterns and even increase muscle strength. Um, there are reports that show that joint manual therapy techniques can enhance dynamic balance okay. and even actually improve uh, kinematics during sport-specific tasks such as landing. Mm. Um, so, if we look at that, then there's the potential for joint manual therapy techniques to improve um, sensory function and motor function yeah. um, in a short period of time, uh, as well as, of course, reducing pain and helping clear effusion. If we look at uh, taping and bracing, then there are several published reports from all over the world, again, that talk about how taping can immediately reduce pain around some peripheral mm. joints. Um, certainly the application of elastic bandages um, or, or even for example tubi grip or neoprene sleeves can also immediately reduce pain. Mm. Um, and then there are also lots of reports from various research groups that state that uh, they've had significantly beneficial effects of, of various taping and neoprene bracing techniques in enhancing different components of proprioception. Sure. So the way that I look at this is that um, we, can, we can integrate this work, we can translate this work into rational clinical interventions where we can use manual therapy and taping and bracing techniques to basically prepare patients for exercise therapy that immediately follows um, and that's a really really critical point for me uh, to make is that manual therapy and taping is not something that we tend to see uh, or I tend to see as being um, powerful enough to have really long-lasting effects sure 
Uh, and, and that's just, you know obviously what the research says as well. Yeah. But what we can do is we can use it to improve, um, to reduce pain, to clear effusion and help improve sensory motor function that gets the patient ready for doing exercise immediately after that. Right. And that it's the exercise therapy that is the critical component for really getting the long-term benefits. Um, okay. So really that's how I'd integrate okay. manual therapy and exercise therapy. Could you give us some examples, possibly? Some clinical examples? Uh, yeah, sure, I can, I can give you some, um, some quick clinical examples from that. And again, I only tend to see lower quadrant problems yeah. in clinical practice now. So um, I had a young female dancer come into clinic recently with uh, a 10-day-old acute ankle sprain. Um, she had a little bit of pain and swelling, and so initially um, she could not stand on a single leg without mm -hmm. some level of pain um, and she couldn't evert, actively evert her foot and ankle up against gravity. So um, did some very gentle joint mobilizations to try and clear some of that effusion, did some skin brushing mm -hmm. over um, her perineals and she was able then to actually evert her foot further mm -hmm. against gravity. Um, so her active range of motion increased mm -hmm. and she was able to take weight through her leg without pain. Okay. Um, so obviously as a result of that she was then given appropriate exercises to actually yeah. improve the activation of her everters even more. Um, there was a, let's see if I can recall this correctly, a young female skier that came in. She was about two weeks after an MCL sprain. Right, okay. Um, and her passive knee extension was um, pretty much zero degrees, but her active knee extension was, uh, let's see, I think it was about 12 degrees. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's quite severe muscle weakness. Um, and there wasn't much pain there. So just a few very gentle joint mobilizations to address the pain that was there, but again, to try and wake up the quadriceps a little bit, yeah. some stimulation of the skin immediately over the quads, yeah. brush, brushing those very firmly, quite vigorously, uh, and then she was able to almost fully extend her knee. Okay. So we were able to get better motor mm -hmm. output and muscle activation, mm -hmm. and so of course she was given um, appropriate exercises to yeah. then go away with yeah. and try and improve that further. So those are just really two mm recent quick examples yeah. um so it always seems like you, you know you do your manual therapy or you use your taping and it's always backed up with a structured exercise program yeah absolutely um the effects of the manual therapy and taping are, are temporary yeah um there has to be that follow-up exercise therapy component mm. to at least maintain things or mm. Um, hopefully if the person's able to go away and do them regularly yeah. to actually improve even further. Brilliant. So what mechanisms do you feel are at work then? Um, I mean this depends on the type of, for me this depends on the type of injury and the stage of healing. Um, full circle again almost from the yeah. assessment, <laughs> the subjective and the objective, you know, what are the, uh, if there are impairments there, what are we treating? Yeah, sure. Pain, effusion, or if there's no pain and effusion, is there actual capsule ligament shortening mm. and joint stiffening? Because whatever's present, that will influence the type of joint mobilization we use. Yeah. Is it an accessory mobilization or is it a physiological 
yeah. mobilization. Um, what we're treating will also potentially um, determine the grade of joint right, mobilization okay. that we're using. So are we going to use the Maitland model and is it going to be a grade one, two, three or four mobilization? Or yeah. are we going to use the Kelton-Born model and use a grade one, two or three? Yeah. Um, so it really comes down to what are we actually treating? And if we're treating pain, for example, then um, I am still a believer in the pain gate theory. Okay. Um, and what I mean by that is, is that perhaps it's not appropriate to call it the pain gate theory, but mm. to recognize that stimulation of mechanoreceptors can actually block um, nociceptors yeah. in some way. So perhaps it's more accurate to actually say spinal nociceptive inhibition, yeah. because of course there's a lot of discussion now about how of course pain is only in the brain. <laughs> so if we're talking about um, spinal mechanisms, then uh, it's probably more appropriate to say spinal nociceptive inhibition. Mm -hmm. um, for any of the pain specialists that are out there, then please uh, correct me if I'm a little Don't bit worry, off my sure terminology <laughs> here. Um, but then also, we can think about what happens at cortical level, because yeah. obviously earlier on we were talking about how simultaneously spinal levels affected and cortical levels affected. Sure. So. Um, if we think of the pain neuromatrix, then there's mm. the descending nociceptive inhibition as well. Uh, and there's actually uh, a paper, quite a nice paper, that's currently okay. in, in press in Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy wow. okay. that um, talks about some of this with uh, knee pain and knee arthritis, yeah. uh, where doing peripheral joint mobilizations, obviously around the knee, reduces pain and that some of the, the outcome measures that are used allude to the fact that there are um, spinal mechanisms but also that um, the descending nociceptive inhibition mm. is activated as well. Um, and if I'm activating both of those mechanisms to, to decrease pain in some way with a joint mobilization, I'm okay with that. Yeah. If the patient says that they feel less pain and it enables them, it facilitates them to move more, um, and dare I say better, whatever that means, mm -hmm. then I'm going to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the mechanisms that I work with effusion, that, that really is potentially quite simple, is that um, fluid agitation within the joint and moving the joint is going to cause a mechanical pumping effect sure. and help remove an effusion by the venous system and the lymphatic system. Um, but then if pain and effusion aren't problems and we have someone whose joint has actually um, Dem whose joint is actually demonstrating perhaps capsule or ligament mm. shortening and stiffening, mm. then obviously we need to do some mm. more forceful joint mobilizations. Mm. Um, and we can do repeated movements up to or into that resistance with joint mobilizations um, that are ultimately going to cause hysteresis mm. or illicit hysteresis mm. and tissue elongation. And of course, that's basic physics if you like that's yeah. basic biomechanics is that with repeated loading mm. of a tissue um, we can cause it to change its shape and yeah. elongate in some way uh, and really finally in terms of the kind of mechanisms that, that I believe are occurring um, is uh, are if we stretch a capsule and a ligament 
in some way and we load it in some way, then we're going to be stimulating those mechanoreceptors sure. as well. So there's always going to be um, a mechanical effect and uh, a neurological effect as yeah. well. But really, the which mechanisms are working depends primarily on what are we tr what impairment are we treating. Um, so all of those can beneficially affect the transmission of, of proprioceptive information mm -hmm. to the central nervous system. Um, all of those will affect both spinal level and supraspinal levels of the mm -hmm. central nervous system. Uh, and, and really, you know, that's important because we can't have that normal movement without not just uh, sensory correct, appropriate sensory inputs before appropriate motor output, mm. but the joints need to actually be able to move. Yeah. So if, if kinematics of the joint are affected because mm. the joint is stiff and mm. hypomobile, mm. then it's not perhaps not reasonable to expect someone to actually be able to acquire, um, mm. no, I've said it a couple of times now, but dare I say it again, normal movement mm. patterns. Mm. Um, and function. And function. Because you know, ultimately, you know, they work, you know, they walk through the door, um, you know, because they want to achieve some degree of function and it's, and it always goes back to function and activity and participation, as you rightly said at the start. So yeah, no, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we've um, got, we've got to get that joint mobility back, mm. whether it's because, uh, whether it's by reducing pain, um, reducing effusion, mm. um, reversing joint stiffness. Mm. And all of that is going to enhance the sensory feedback to the central nervous system, and all of that is going to actually improve the motor output. Yeah. So, I think those are the way I would explain. That's brilliant. the way I would explain the mechanisms that are yeah. at work. No, brilliant. Now, so you are a strong advocate for exercise therapy. Clearly, um, you know from your background and obviously what you've been saying so far. Um, so. Can you tell us about your thoughts on the use of um, exercise therapy as a sensory motor modality? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that as well. Um, we can read a lot in the literature, journal articles, textbooks. We hear people talking about what um, these are proprioceptive exercises, these are strength training exercises, that isn't a proprioceptive exercise. Well, um, if we think about it on a simplistic level, whenever someone does anything active, they're going to be stimulating mechanoreceptors in the non-contractile tissues, they're going to be stimulating the mechanoreceptors in muscles and tendons. Mm. Um, there's something called alpha-gamma coactivation. Okay. With active movements, we always um, stimulate the alpha motor neurons that actually innervate the muscle spindles and we stimulate um, the alpha motor neurons that stimulate the extrafusal fibers. Um, so we're always going to be stimulating the muscle spindle with active movement. So for me, um, basically any and all active exercises are examples of proprioceptive exercises. Uh, and that's a really important concept um, because again there are research reports that um, state that strength training improves proprioception, that balance training improves proprioception and that plyometric training can significantly improve proprioception. So all of these different types of training are obviously active and they can improve different measures of proprioception. And we need these active exercises to, to stimulate all parts of the sensory motor system. Um, but the important concept is, is that 
it needs to be repeated movements, repeated exercise within one session, but also over multiple training sessions in order to uh, facilitate the plastic adaptations that can occur in, um, for example, the spinal cord or, or the cortex. So the tissue um, almost needs to, so it sounds like a tissue almost, sounds like what you're saying is the tissue needs to be chronically overloaded over a long period of time potentially. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, o not necessarily overloaded, mm. but loaded. So um, non-contractile tissues need mm. to be loaded regularly mm -hmm. to cause the mechanoreceptors in those tissues to be stimulated. Okay. Um, we're obviously talking about this outside of um, the mechanical adaptations that mm. will occur with tissues when they're actually loaded in a repeated and controlled way. So that's the key thing, is that in a controlled way. Um, and it's the repeated loading of the tissues, it's the repeated activation of the muscles over multiple training sessions mm. that are necessary to get these plastic adaptations in the central nervous system. Mm. Uh, and really, you know, those plastic uh, adaptations will, will manifest as um, improved postural stability and improved mm. kinematics and kinetics during movement, um, as well as, for example, increased muscle strength. Yeah. Um, so exercise therapy is critical. I don't want to say it's the most important part mm. because I think you know we've discussed at length as to why it manual therapy can and in many instances should be used before exercise therapy mm. and taping and so on. So, you know, manual therapy and, and, and taping and bracing can be used as appropriate in, um, for what I could term now, the early and middle stages of rehab to help mm. patients prepare for and facilitate that exercise therapy. And then as time passes, manual therapy will stop taping and bracing will stop and it will just be exercise therapy based. Um, so there's a continuum. Mm. For me, there's a continuum of, of um, interventions and, and sensory motor rehab. Um, so in simple terms, there needs to be an integrated interve mm. intervention model mm. across all the stages of rehab mm. um, designed and employed specifically mm. to that one person in front of us mm. and um, their personal circumstances, mm. their emotional circumstances and what impairments are we seeing, mm. what activity limitations are we seeing, mm. what participation restrictions are they reporting. Um, so obviously very topical in a lot of the social media at the moment, it's N equals one. Mm. Yes, true. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the exercise therapy and the strength and conditioning mm. is, is critical for um, helping someone achieve mm. the things that they want to achieve. So from a, um, from a strength and conditioning and a loading perspective, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking more, and this, could, and this could work along the continuum um, to some degree, but I think probably in the latter stages of the rehabilitation, so it's, you know, concepts such as periodization where they chronically overload um, you know the participants, but then they structure in rest and recovery um, so that the system improves. Um, you know, with this systematic application of load, um, 
can the same things be applied from a, a sensory motor perspective based upon the fact that you said that you know um, all exercise is, is proprioceptive um, in your experience? Yes. Um, I mean, if we think of the concepts of periodization and, and we, you know, we, we can break it down to um, what historically has been called a microcycle. Yeah. So that can very commonly be uh, one week in yeah. duration. Um, if somebody is, for example, towards the end stage of rehabilitation, um, they're not necessarily in a situation where they uh, where manual therapy is required anymore. They mm. don't need any taping and bracing, and we're just looking at how can we best structure a training week mm. that has plyometric training, that has balance training, mm. that has strength training, that has um, metabolic training in some shape or form, and, and maybe even flexibility training. Mm. You know, we have to look at that in terms of um, two things, I mean, the, the way I look at it is two things, is that firstly, there needs to be sufficient rest built sure. into that training week sure. to allow these, adaptate, these training adaptations to occur. Yeah. So whether it is um, adaptations in the non-contractile tissues, mm -hmm. whether it's adaptations in the skeletal muscles, mm -hmm. whether it's adaptations in the sensory motor system, mm. um, there needs to be sufficient rest period into that. So of course, classically, we talk about there must be at least one total day's rest in any seven day period. Mm. And then it really comes down to what's our knowledge of exercise therapy, our knowledge of strength and conditioning, mm. and how should we order yeah. the different uh, training sessions. Mm. So it's probably not a good idea to do exhaustive um, strength training. Mm -hmm. So absolute strength training or maximum strength training uh, before doing a plyometric training session. Yeah, sure. Um, it may not be appropriate to do uh, exhaustive absolute maximum strength training before doing uh, types of coordination training sure. or balance training. Sure. So it's, it's obviously, quite, as you know, quite a complex area. Mm. Um, it requires understanding of different training methods, mm. the uh, effects and adaptations that occur as a result of those training methods, mm. uh, and also to have an understanding of uh, fatigue. And fatigue, of course, is an interesting one because mm. there's lots of research that reports, for example, that acute metabolic fatigue impairs proprioception. Sure. It impairs rate of force development. It impairs maximum strength. So metabolic, metabolic fatigue is an important one. Mm. Um, neurological fatigue is something mm. that we need to think about. And then, of course, there's tissue fatigue, yeah. which is where if we overload the tissues excessively, mm. um, then theoretically that's how we might actually cause mm. stress fractures, for example. Mm. So um, we could go on talking about this mm. as well, couldn't we, for, for a long time? But um, does that answer your question? It does, it does. I mean, but do you think, so, um, you know, if you're dealing with, you know, someone who is a, you know, semi-professional football player and they're going back to, you know, a very high level of physical activity and within that activity, 
there is going to be some component of fatigue because I know you just spoke about fatigue and actually that's really really interesting because you know fatigue can be problematic but equally so if we are preparing this individual for the demands of what they're going back into you know would you be an advocate for actually building in fatigue um, you know and trying to see whether actually they're able to pull it all together and still maintain um, you know relatively good movement patterns alignment and so on because you've actually factored that into their training program at the appropriate time right does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely I, I, so it's realistic training right at the end yeah I mean of the rehabilitation the, the way that I'd start to answer that is to say that rather than actually building in training where they're pushing through fatigue mm -hmm what we need to include is actual fatigue resistance training. Okay. So, yeah. um, you know, I'll, I'll caveat what I'm going to say with some of this is that obviously as a, um, a musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapist, mm. um, I am not completely up to date with a lot of the exercise physiology thinking, um, but a foundation would be just to uh, improve their aerobic fitness sure. to improve their aerobic base yeah. and then build in different training methods um, such as interval training yeah. to actually improve anaerobic um, sure. fitness for want of a better term and actually uh, just really improve their metabolic capacity mm -hmm. to offset the onset of fatigue. Sure. So really that would be the way that um, I would go about it to begin with sure. and first of all. Uh, and, and you know the example that you gave in terms of an elite sport or a professional sport context really you know there's a lot that comes into it there. It's what does the player want to do, what does the manager want to do, what sure. does the manager need. Um, is it essential if that player starts demonstrating signs and symptoms of metabolic fatigue is it essential for that player to stay on the field? Sure. Is it worth encouraging them to push through and actually risk an injury as a result of fatigue? Or is it better to substitute them and, and pull them off? Uh, and again, if we look at a lot of the epidemiology literature, hmm. when do most injuries occur, non-contact injuries occur? They occur towards the end of a half or yeah. you know, the end of a game, don't yeah. they? That's when right. players theoretically are fatigued. That's right. Um, in the military context, it's different. Very much so. You might not be able to remove um, mm -hmm. that soldier, that operator from mm -hmm. the mission or the task at hand, uh, in which case they just obviously have to keep going. Yeah. Um, and you know, knowing the guys like we do, they'll obviously yeah. push through anyway and be very reluctant to um, mm -hmm. be removed from that, uh, that task or mm -hmm. that operation in some way. So for me there's a lot of different variables that need to be accounted in that and I sure. I can't give you a, a, a one size fits all answer I'm afraid no. <laughs> and I wouldn't expect that no Nick thank you very much indeed um, so I think we've reached the end of the podcast um, so really for me it's I have to thank you uh, for your contribution um, and the MACP thanks you as well. Um, so how can people find out uh, more about you and how can they make contact with you if they want to find out more about what you've been speaking about and what you do? 
Uh, well, if they want to find out more about this, uh, these topics and, and this kind of stuff, um, then I've been teaching weekend CPD courses for over 10 years now. Um, and, and the main courses that I deliver are, for example, open and closed chain uh, knee rehabilitation in early and mid-stage rehabilitation. Um, another course is proprioception and neuromuscular control in knee functional joint stability. Um, other courses that I've taught are return to play testing and, and mm -hmm. re-injury prevention for the knee. Uh, and then specifically there's clinical plyometrics in, in knee injury rehabilitation. So um, obviously more than uh, people are more than welcome to come along and attend those and uh, learn more and ask more questions. Um, on Twitter, they can follow me on Twitter if they like, and, and my handle is at Dr. Nick CC. Uh, I also have a Facebook page for integrated physiotherapy and conditioning. Um, there are a couple of LinkedIn groups that I started several years ago, sports knee specialists and military knee specialists. Uh, alternatively, there's um, my own website, which is integratedphysiotherapy.com. Uh, and if anyone feels that they want to contact me directly, then they can contact me at uh, enquiries at integratedphysiotherapy.com. So um, quite a lot to, to choose from there. Uh, yeah. and, you know, I'd just like to say thank you, Uzo, and thank you to the MACP for inviting me along to talk about this. No, thank you.